Welcome to Conversations, a podcast by Christ Presbyterian Church of Auburn, where we get a chance to sit down and have a conversation with Pastor Zellner and learn how God's Word applies to our lives. Welcome back to Conversations, a podcast by Christ Presbyterian Church of Auburn. I'm sitting here with my pastor, Eric Zellner. How are you doing today, my man? I'm good. How are you, Will? I'm doing great. I noticed all the past podcasts I said fantastic, so I changed it to great today. <laughs> We're here to talk about the doctrines of grace, and we've hit on total depravity and unconditional election, and now today we're going to talk about what's commonly called limited or particular or definite atonement. For sake of the acronym, we'll go with limited atonement. I think one thing that's really important to emphasize before we keep going is the logical connectedness of the doctrines of grace. So just to catch everyone up so far, total depravity, we showed through the scriptures that man is incapable of saving himself. And so if man is not capable to save himself, then it is God who must save him, unconditional election. And if God has saved the person and we look around the world and we see not everyone is saved, then God has saved a particular group of people. So when Christ died on the cross, it was for a particular set of people. And that's what limited atonement is. And so to pass it back to you, Pastor Zellner, I remember a young Will Leitner once giving a devotional his senior year of high school saying, Jesus Christ died for a just-in-case, that we would just-in-case might follow him. Mm-hmm. Was Will Leitner at that point in his life uh, completely wrong? Uh, well, I'm sure you had great motives <laughs> behind it. Honestly, don't you, don't you know you did? The, uh, the heart of it is, and I, I shared this with you offline, the, the heart of it is, you know, my... Uh, you know, what you're equating it with is that is that the love of God must be a grand universal love, and then uh, it's just simply up to people to come to saving faith by choosing Christ. Uh, but the equivalent to that would be uh, Eric generally loves all females in the whole world um, as uh, as deeply as he might love his wife Susan. Well, uh, that's more troublesome than it is helpful. That's so different from the fact that I really do particularly, specifically, definitely love Susan Zellner differently than I love every other woman in the whole world. Right. Right? It's a totally different kind of love. So the Bible is telling us that, that God's love is placed definitively on his elect, and he, uh, by the blood of Christ, atones for or pays for the sins of his particular People. That's what we're basically saying. Now, the contrast to that is um, uh, others might say, you know, Christ suffered for the forgiveness and redemption of all people, yet only those who are actually uh, forgiven and saved, or the, excuse me, only those who believe are the ones who are forgiven and saved. But in a very real sense, um, that would mean that Christ's suffering was wasted on some who never did believe. Mm-hmm. In other words, it was in vain. Right. Jesus died and suffered for people who never would embrace salvation offered through him. Um, that would be uh, more or less heartbreaking, and it certainly would weaken uh, the particular love of God. Right. Um, I, 
I remember reading R.C. Sproul said that the question is whether Jesus was a real Savior or a potential Savior. Can you work through some of that and then maybe point to some passages in Scripture that kind of work some of this through? Yeah, sure. I mean, going back to our, um, we've, we've talked about um, Ephesians 1, 4, right, that, that the Lord chose a particular people. These are his elect. Uh, those are his exact people. Um, from the creation of the world, he chose a people for salvation. And then for these people and these alone, God sent his son to purchase salvation. In John chapter 10, uh, Jesus chapter 10 verse 11 Jesus is speaking of himself as the good shepherd he says I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep uh, he doesn't lay down his life for uh, somebody else's sheep he lays down his life for his sheep um, and then he, he, he says I lay, further down in verse uh, 14 I'm the good shepherd I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, and then he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Um, those who are of the Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, uh, take that passage out of context and say, Jesus is talking about uh, Americans who would later receive the Book of Mormon through Joseph Smith. That's not at all what this particular passage means. Jesus is speaking to Jews. He's saying, I have other sheep who will come to saving faith in me, and they might be Gentiles. They might be people of, of different ethnicity. And he says, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. It's a really particular salvation that's offered to a particular people. Um, and then there's also, you know, the benefits of death are applied to his people. Jesus doesn't pray um, to save the whole world. He prays that God would save his particular people. That's John 17, uh, 9, and other places. And one passage that comes to mind for me is looking at John chapter 6. You see that Jesus says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 38, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you see, Jesus is accomplishing the will of the Father, and the Father has given him people to raise up on the last day. And so you see that Jesus in the atonement, which is you know the, the forgiveness of sins on the cross, he's atoning for the people he's going to raise up on the last day. He's not paying for everyone's sins, which would be universalism, as in everyone has their sins forgiven, but he's paying for a particular people. I think it's fascinating that, that John's gospel specifically uh, gives us a kind of ear to the Lord's uh, very particular grace for a very particular people. Uh, while Christ is walking on the face of the earth, he is communicating that he will bleed and die to pay for the sins of his of the very people that God has given to him to save. What would you say to someone that says, I only receive forgiveness of my sins until I believe in Jesus Christ? Essentially saying, I don't get the benefits of the cross until I have actually professed faith in Jesus. Well, I mean, I, I would say you, uh, you're putting an awful lot of stock in that moment of your belief and very little stock on the kind of God who would pursue you. If we are his elect and he chooses us before the foundations of the world, then uh, he, is, he is 
making an account for atonement, the, the justice of God's wrath falling on himself in the form of his own son instead of falling on us. So um, the truth is, in, in time and space sequence, it would appear to our eyes like, well, I, I, I receive application of God's atonement when I actually embrace Christ. Mm-hmm. But in the eyes of God, and clearly what the Scripture teaches, is before the foundation of the world, God planned to pay for the sins of all of his people uh, at that particular time and space in Jerusalem, like Golgotha, um, whereas you and I live at a particular time and, and, and we think it's happening in that moment. Uh, the mind of God foreknew and planned and predestined and elected to salvation, and he, he made atonement. Right. Uh, count that way. And I think you have to say, too, if faith is a prerequisite for my sins being forgiven, then what happened to the sin of my unbelief before that? Was it paid for? Um, and on top of that, if I don't, if Christ hasn't paid for my sins until I believe in Him, then you have to ask, well, what was the cross effective up until that point? You see, as you see, as you've hinted at, that Christ's work is really in vain until man has responded. Yeah, and it's hinging on our response. Exactly. Right? Otherwise, I mean, the, the whole concept of uh, of total depravity and unconditional election leads us to the conclusion that if God is going to save anybody, it's got to be His work. Um, and therefore, my response doesn't do a lot to to bring about any of the salvation. It just happens to be the work of faith that the Lord has given um, by His Spirit. Right. So. I, th- I think this is a challenging doctrine for some people because it essentially attacks the idea that Jesus has come to die for the sins of everyone. And you'll see some passages in Scripture that seem to indicate this, that Jesus has died for all people. Do you think it'd be helpful to look at some of these objection passages? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of them. Yeah, that'd be great. Go ahead and raise whichever ones we can talk through this. Well, I know there's one in 1 Timothy that I remember for me that was a challenging passage uh, where it seems to indicate the opposite of kind of what we've been talking about. Um, 1 Timothy, let's see. 1 Timothy 2, I'll start in verse 1, it goes to uh, verse 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and who all are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this is the part right here. This is good and it was pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Which part are they having trouble with, Will? <laughs> I mean, they're obviously, the, the concern is that uh, the passage says, uh, God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so um, I think the natural objection with this passage is how could the Lord um, definitively, well, I'm going to say it backwards by accident, how could he, how could he save some and... and neglect to save others or their presumption is that there's somebody out there who really is hoping to be saved and there's not enough uh, atonement to pay for that Mm -hmm. Um, and what what we're really saying is that God's intention in the death of Christ is to save the elect and he is uh, perfect in accomplishing his mission now when you read a a 1st Timothy 2 passage and and it says the Lord desires all people to be saved uh, he's just made reference to kings and those who are in high positions that we should be praying for. 
Um, and so the the correct understanding of this particular passage is the Lord desires that all kinds of people should be saved. Right. We should be actively praying that the Lord might save all kinds of people. Right. Pray for kings because he wants kings, peasants, workers. He wants all all types of people to be saved. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so uh, I think one of the things that's helpful about this particular passage, you can actually read it with a view of limited atonement and uh, and and be really grateful because what the Lord is doing in this particular passage is reminding us that we do not have the full knowledge of who he's going to save. And yet he's been kind and willing enough to invite us to participate in uh, the kingdom work. Pray for them. Be a part of that kingdom work. And uh, certainly the Lord desires to draw his people to, to saving faith. Right. Be a part of that work. I think that's what what's uh, helpful there. And I think one thing that's important to emphasize too is this idea that God does have a general love for his creation. And that's what you see in that Second Peter passage, Second Peter 3, 9, yeah. that there is a, a love that he has for his creation so that he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. But there is a special love that he gives only to his elect. And those are the ones in which he accomplished his redemption for. Yeah, I think that that's... Uh just as you mentioned earlier in a conversation offline, you know, the, the Lord doesn't is a judge, and he doesn't delight and get happy about the, the concept of uh, tossing some people into fiery judgment. He doesn't delight in that. So it's really accurate to say the Lord doesn't delight or doesn't want that to happen. And yet in order for the Lord to be uh, both uh, merciful, graceful, gracious, and just— that is a that's a necessary result of his godly character. Mm -hmm. That's how he's righteous. Well, and if people are having a hard time with this, I think you can think about the cross itself. God does not delight in inflicting wrath upon his son, but we see in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush his son. So you see that we're dealing with a big God here. He doesn't delight in something, but delights in something. Yeah. I mean that's a, that's the nature of, of the, the grandeur of his character, right? This is a this is a full orbed picture, and so you know when we look at a passage like this one in First Timothy two or the one in Second Peter three, our first inclination is to think, well, clearly this is a passage that contradicts the other teachings on a particular atonement, uh, or Jesus's words in John six or John ten or John seventeen. Uh, when we encounter something like that, what we need to do is say, okay, what is the general teaching of Scripture? Um, if something appears to be contradictory and we believe the Bible is true, we need to begin from the place that it only really appears to be contradictory. Mm -hmm. It's not, in fact, contradictory. So what we need to do is understand what's the general teaching of Scripture. Clearly the Lord does uh, apply the blood of Christ specifically to his own people. Um, and yet there's other aspects that, um, that the Lord speaks of by way of revealing more of the character of God, somewhat of the mystery of the mind of God. Right. Well, I think let's say that these passages, because some of them, when you see the words any and all, you have to look at the context. But let's say that they do mean that God desires all people to be saved. You, you really have three options in my eyes. You say that God desires all people to be saved, and he's in control, so all people are, all, are saved, which is universalism. That's right. Everybody then must be saved. 
or you say that God desires all people to be saved, but he's not in control, and he's really, the atonement doesn't matter until people have made a response, which takes God out of the driver's seat. Or the third option, which is God is totally in control and is going to accomplish redemption for his elect, but at the same time has a general love for his creation. So he does desire that all people will, all types of people will be saved, but doesn't desire in a special sense that they all be saved because we clearly see that universalism is not true. Yeah, and, and that brings us back to the concept of a, of a big God who very specifically uh, spilled the blood of his own son to pay for the specific sins of a particular people that he really did elect before the foundation of the world. Uh, it's actually a beautiful, doc- a beautiful doctrine. In every way, uh, it, it lands in our laps by way of application because suddenly uh, when I sin or you sin or we recognize by the help of the Holy Spirit that we're not living lives that are uh, perfect and godly and, uh, and totally honoring to God, um, there's always a moment where you go, am I really saved? Do I really belong to Christ? Uh, and a doctrine like this says that the blood of Jesus Christ really was essential and enough to pay for all my sins. Therefore, I can take great comfort, and the only reason I'm even thinking about the fact that I sin is because the Lord has clearly moved into my heart, mm. Ezekiel, taken out my heart of stone and given me a heart of flesh. And the very fact that I'm aware of sin tells me I really do belong to Christ. Unbelievers don't grieve sin, right? But the comfort when I'm convicted by my sin is that my salvation is so completely secure already because Jesus really did die for his precise people. Mm -hmm. And the Holy Spirit in that way is a kind of evidence to me. It's proof that the work of the the Lord's grace has already been applied to me. Right, And, and how humbling it is and how great of a picture it is of the love of God when you realize that he didn't just hope that I would come to saving faith and he wasn't just a potential savior for Will Leitner if he believed in him but he actually chose me before the foundation of the world and made sure it was going to happen and accomplished it no matter the circumstances he was going to accomplish it for me it makes it it not only flattens me to say who am I to be a part of the flock of God, but it totally magnifies the love of God to say that he's particularly looked and put his favor upon me for no reason except grace. Well, and I think all of the doctrines we're talking about, the the real takeaway from these is not, uh, hey, good, I can, I can beat up my friends who don't think this, <laughs> the mm-hmm. same thing. It really serves to magnify the profound love of God to be so deliberate in his pursuit of sinners like me. So then the question becomes, why was the Lord so kind? And the answer to that question is simply, it will, it will glorify him to save sinners by doing it this way. And, and I'm out of the equation, and God's in the equation as the, as the prime mover. Mm-hmm. Amen. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to our podcast on limited atonement and the doctrines of grace. Thank you, Pastor Zollner, for sitting down and having a conversation, and uh, we'll see you guys at the next one.